Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now, we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, it's Josh. Hi, and it's Joe. And you're about to listen to another great episode of the movies that made me. Uh, just want to give you a heads up. Many of the movies. Occasionally, we'll talk about something that's pretty obscure and has never come out on video. Most of the movies we talk about on the show are available at MoviesUnlimited.com, which is the movie collector's website. Yeah, don't waste your time streaming or looking for your favorites on TV. You can own them. Physical media, babies. Yes, go to the TrailersFromHell.com website, click the Movies Unlimited banner on the website, and you can buy your favorites from them, or go right to MoviesUnlimited.com. Shipping is always free on orders over $50. Movies, movies, movies. Uh, how are, uh, wait, where are you? I'm in Calabasas. I'm in, I'm in, I, we shot one day, uh, for season two of Creep Show, and then they pushed the pause button. So I'm calling this the pause because I can't think of any other way to have it make any sense other than that. I'm going to try to keep this part short because we actually do want to talk to you, but, um, writer, producer director uh uh second unit director um and effects maker. uh I, I was getting to that joseph um yeah effects makeup um my my favorite stuntman <laughs> oh that's right i've done some stunts. <laughs> uh, uh what uh, uh, archive footage yeah that's not actually a job okay um but we're here with Greg, Greg Nicotero from, from, I mean, how many from creep show from, uh, walking dead. Um, uh, actually walking dead has been coming up a lot on our pandemic parade specials. We've been asking people to talk about what they're watching while they're locked up under quarantine. And I think there's a real straight line between people who, um, uh, find it now to be the great time to watch things about zombie apocalypse and people who don't, but, uh, there are a lot of folks, <laughs> I think they I think they finish watching um uh outbreak and then they want something more and they they uh, segue into walking dead. I still don't quite understand that that logic but <laughs> uh, well and by, I I want to before we be I should I should wait until we're done before I alienate you but I want to I want to lodge a complaint. Um we're huge fans of uh of Dana Gould on this show but as a portly gentleman I am deeply offended by the fact that uh, you had to go outside the tribe to um, get uh, someone to play a portly gentleman. As good as Dana was. As good as Dana was. Well, you know, I remember there were times when Dana was slightly portlier than he is now. And to be honest, I hadn't seen him in a while because he was doing his thing. So when he showed up, I was like, son of a bitch, you're thinner than I remember. (laughs) 
Uh, well, that that'll change after this pandemic, I suspect. We're all just <laughs> sitting around eating and drinking. Uh, but Greg, thank you, thank you so much for joining us, man. I really, uh, really appreciate My it. My pleasure. My pleasure. I know we've been talking about we've been talking about trying to do this for the last three years. I think. So something. Well, no, we've been, have we been on that long? We've been on. Oh God, how long have we been on, Joe? Yeah, longer than you think. About that. <sighs> Yeah, we just, we are about to drop our 75th guest. So I guess we have been around for a while. Um, well, thank you. You're uh, you're doing the tour right now uh, yep. uh, from your home, <laughs> um, promoting promoting Creepshow. Yep. The first season of which uh, is being released on DVD and Blu-ray today, June 2nd, 2020, um, which is such, it's such a fun show, man. It, um it, uh, I, it, it, how do you describe the aesthetic of the show? Cause it's, it's, I was trying to, it, it really captures something. It really has a, a, a beautiful approach to the material that is funny and scary at the same time. Well, you know, I, I, I really, I really keyed in on one major thing, which is that tagline on the poster, which said, it's the most fun you'll ever have being scared. And I really realized that, that the horror genre, um, benefits so much from variety. And in this day and age where you have a lot of people that whether they want to commit to something long form or, or not, the truth of the matter is little sort of short bites of, of horror material and, and stuff that can be scary, it can be fun, it can be outrageous, seem to be, it seemed to be the right time for that. You know, I mean, I love Night Gallery, and I even like the idea that like there was night gallery episodes that had like a segment that was like two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yep. And, and when we originally started developing creep show, I said, guys, we have to, we have to go for that comic book experience. Like you're reading a comic book. Cause I think the network was like, yeah, let's just do a one hour anthology. And I said, it doesn't really work that way. You need multiple stories. You can't just have one story. So yeah, we originally started with the idea of doing three stories in one episode. And when we started getting into the production, the realizations that I bit off way more than I could chew, we cut it from three to two. And <clears throat> that was what I felt most important was that you could watch one episode and it would be about this weird sort of haunted dollhouse. And then you'd have another episode that would be, um, you know, this weird relationship between a father and his son set in the backdrop of alcoholism and codependence. So that was really what, what excited me about it and being able to work with, with other filmmakers. And, you know, Joe was one, was one person that I originally um, reached out to and was really because I felt like Joe's aesthetic for telling stories and keeping them light, but keeping them scary and having the right, yeah. the right identity. Yeah. It's just, honestly, our production schedule was so, was so ridiculous. You know, I mean, three, three and a half days to shoot a segment. I, I kind of, uh, I kind of realized that that was asking a, a, a lot for, for anybody to try to come in and do something like that. It was just a bit crazy. So Especially if you have to go to Canada. Yeah, but we went to Atlanta. It was even, it was, uh... so anyway, you know, I feel like, you know, I was just thinking about the show and initially, 
you know, if I would do it all again and go back and do season one, because, you know, I, I hadn't been a showrunner before. I'd been on The Walking Dead and I was pretty hands on with that show for the last 10 years. But when you're when you're the showrunner, I had this sort of idea that, well, I wanted to have my hands in everything. You know, I wanted to design the comic book covers and I wanted to design all of the page turns. And so when we started developing the show and doing the scripts, I really was like overseeing everything. And I didn't learn or know better to sort of dole out some of those responsibilities. Ah. So it was really, uh, it was a really rough situation. And when I got into post and I started editing the episodes and, and realized that, you know, that it was going to be a lot harder than I thought, I really had to buckle in and, and force myself through. But um, the one thing that showed was the heart that I put into the series and that I really cared and that all the actors and all the directors and all the writers, they also really came, everybody came for the same reason. And I feel like that's what makes Creepshow successful. Yeah, no, it's 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 a lot of fun. Um, I just want to say, because we're not, you know, we, we uh, pride ourselves on not talking about our guests' work and we've or already blown that right out of the gate, but I'll just I'll say one thing before we jump into um, uh, your your movies. Um, you you without giving anything away, uh, you did an episode that has um, I think one of my favorite werewolf transformations outside of the Howling. <laughs> um, a very clever usage of the structure of your show to get by, I'm sure, some budget considerations. Um, but just a wonderful, wonderful transformation sequence. Well, thank you. Listen, I mean, Rob Schraub, who wrote and directed that episode, he was he was one of the first people that we had reached out to. I mean, I knew Rob uh, when he was working on the Sarah Silverman show, and he has the perfect aesthetic. You know, even so much as, you know, a lot of that stuff was even in the script. You know, when the werewolf knocks the guy's head off and the blood sprays the window. And then as the blood runs down the window, the color changes to red. You know I mean? He, I think he probably more than any of the other directors embraced the creep show comic book flair, which I think was very, very important for mm. setting the show aside. And one of the, I got a call from the LA times and they said, how do you feel about creating a show that is accessible horror? And I'd never heard that expression before. What's accessible horror? And they said, well, in this day and age, you know, it's not overly gratuitous. There's not nudity. There's not a lot of swearing. It, you created a show that was accessible to more than just one particular demographic. And I'd never thought about it that way. But I think because right. in certain instances, the show was a little lighter. Plus, I really wanted to embrace the aesthetic of the movies that I grew up loving, like the, you know, the movies in the seventies and eighties, you know, uh, Dawn of the Dead. And of course, you know, all of Joe's movies, which I'm not trying to kiss butt, but you know, I'm a big fan of Joe's work and, and Joe's work inspired me on Creepshow. Uh, well, why don't let's, let's take that as a segue then and uh, go into some of the movies that um, I don't know. What's, what's the phrase made me. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about some of those? Yeah. Greg, like, where are you? What, 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 what started you on this path? What's your? Uh... Well, you know, my ironically, my dad was one of the first people that had a VCR, 
he was a he he was and still is like a big gadget guy. So he was friends with this these guys that owned a store downtown Pittsburgh um, called Opus One, and they had all of the latest technology. So he had the old reel-to-reel video recorder. So you'd have to thread the reel through it, and then you would hit the record button, and you would turn it on. And we, this was probably, I would say, in the mid-70s, 74, 75. We had a reel-to-reel video recorder. Oh, wow. So there was a, there was a device that you would have to plug into the back of your TV and plug it into the VCR. And again, there was no cable, so it was rabbit ears. Um, and I started recording movies. And the first two movies that I recorded was The Time Machine and Horror of Dracula. So. Fantastic. How did they, how did they look? They look fantastic. <laughs> did they really? Okay. They looked amazing. And the funny thing is they would have commercials. So you'd have to stop recording when the commercials come on and then you'd have to push the button and start recording again. And I remember the the biggest faux pas was when you would forget to start recording again when the movie started. And you'd be sitting there going, oh shit. And you'd run over and you'd hit the record button. Uh-huh. So from, from when I was probably 10 years old, we started collecting movies. Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, King Kong versus Godzilla, um, anything that was playing on the the Saturday afternoon matinees that played in Pittsburgh. And then, of course, uh, Saturday nights, there was a show called Chiller Theater that was hosted by Bill Cardill. Now, Bill was the weatherman and he was a local sort of celebrity. He played the reporter in Night of Living Dead. What do you say, Chief? How do we keep these? How do we keep these? Well, you shoot him in the head and you, you know, bang, you shoot him and burn him. Like that was Bill Cardill. So for me, interestingly enough, when I first saw Night Living Dead, I was like, wait, that reporter is the guy who I watched the news from. So it kind of freaked me out a little bit. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Every Saturday night, he would play two movies. And this was ironically when, when Saturday Night Live came on, Pittsburgh would preempt SNL to play a double feature of Chiller Theater. And then Saturday Night Live would come on afterwards. And then when Saturday Night Live took off, they would then, they shifted it. So I'd have to stay up until one o'clock in the morning to watch horror movies. To one, sure to see. Yeah. So anyway, so I started this collection of, of movies that, that I loved that meant a lot to me. And I would be able to watch them over and over again. So I, I, I really became enamored with the visuals, with, you know, like the time machine, like the makeups on the Morlocks and the map paintings and the special effects. And, and I realized that those fantasy films and those elements um, appealed to me a lot. And I became enamored with the idea of creating these fantastic worlds. That's how I really, really... Um, got into it. You know, my parents are still huge movie buffs and, you know, they took me to the theater. I saw from Russia with love in the theater. I saw planet of the apes in the theater right? in 2001, which I still had no idea what the hell it was about, but my parents love movies. So they took us 
um, to the theater all the time. So I felt like any time a movie came out, within a couple days, they would see it first to make sure it was appropriate for us, and then we would go see it. Um, so that's kind of how it started. Oh, wait, so they they saw 2001 and went, uh, uh, oh, little, little Greggy will enjoy this? <laughs> well, I think that they were they were struck by just the beauty of it. And the joke that we used to have is sure. my mom, like we'd go to Mother's Day, we'd go out for dinner, and 2001 was in theaters for a long time. So they, we would take my mom to dinner, and then we would go see 2001. And she was like, can we see something else other than two? Nope, we're going to see 2001. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that really, that's how it kind of, that's how it started for me. And, you know, Bill Cardill would then play on in July. He would play classic movies. So he would go into the vault and he would play all of the universal monster movies. So it was Wolfman and Frankenstein. And we recorded all of them. So I would have to stay up till one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning and record these movies. Um, and then we would be able to go back and, and watch them. So I felt like I was, I had a weird sort of ownership to those films because I could mm -hmm. go to the closet and take it out of the closet at any time I wanted and watch it. Um, I felt very connected to those films and the special effects of, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon suit and the Wolfman and a lot of those, um, a lot of those movies. So I was really, really sort of initially uh, intrigued by the makeup part of it. And then, um, and then you get into the reruns of Star Trek and Lost in Space. And then I started becoming interested in movie miniatures and models. And that was a completely different world. Um, and, you know, I, I remember seeing the Poseidon adventure probably 11 times in the movie theater because of the disaster movie aspect of it. And I love the big, the big miniature of the Poseidon. Um, and then when you get into the towering Inferno and the towering Inferno to me was, was a really important movie for me because I wanted to start building models and I wanted to start building miniatures because of the towering Inferno. So I would take little like Lego sets and I would build buildings and then I would get like an aerosol can with a lighter and I would film them with Super 8 and burn them and melt them and make movies. Wow. So wow. that that was a big, you know, and that was, I think Towering Inferno came out December of 73 or 74. Mm -hmm. So those movies meant a lot to me because then they I started thinking, well, it's not just makeup, but it's sort of the world of special effects that there's these there's these guys that yeah. they build miniatures and they build practical puppets and they build, you know, like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was a big movie for me because of sure. just the majesty of like, well, how did they make it look like they were underwater? And then the big model of the Nautilus and the and the the squid and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I really, um, I just found myself gravitating towards those kinds of movies. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, if I could nerd out for just one minute, what? Because I'm fascinated. I, I guess I sort of knew about the pre-VHS video recorders. I didn't know anyone who had one, you know, at their home. Were um, 
how, how long how long were the tapes? How much could they hold the entire film on one reel? The tapes were an hour, and that was the other that was the other thing that would bone you because you'd have to. That's funny you would bring that up. Well, you'd have to figure out when the ad break would come that would allow you'd you have to, to figure out where the end break, or you'd get to a commercial and you'd look at how much tape was left, and you'd have to fast forward, do the math, get, get that tape, and thread another one, or you'd be taping a movie. I think when like Thunderball was on, we were recording it, and it ran out, and you'd you'd have to become an expert at grabbing another tape. Do, 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 do. And you know, I think that's what they used in television stations and news reports because. After that, then there was right. the next recorder that we got. And I think some of it, too, ended up my dad, because he's a kidney specialist, um, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of interest in the dialysis center and raising money. And I know Charlton Heston was involved in, in raising money for that. So we had, they would record these videos. So the next player that we got after that was this thing called a, a, a U-Matic. And it was the big square one-hour cassettes that you would shove in. You see them in like, if you watch old, um, if you watch old like broadcast news or you watch an old movie where they work in a TV station, they shove those tapes in. It was before Beta existed. Beta became, I think, the next, right. uh, the next incarnation. So you had the, the reel-to-reel, then the big umatic square tapes that were about that big. And then Beta was next. Beta was smaller. And and what happened to you as as a young collector of this stuff when, say, VHS came in, and you could no longer get the reel to reels? I mean, was there this kind of like you've got this collection? I, this is such nerd shit, but <laughs> you have this collection of movies you can't watch anymore. Did you have to go back and retape them all over again? Or no, that happened to people. That happened to people who who bought video discs. You know, well, this was before. Yeah, but but yeah, you're right, Joe, because. When video discs came out, the first ones came out and they had the needle and the needle would right. play it and you'd stick it in and it would pull the disc out. Um, and so what ended up happening, right. Josh, was that we <clears throat> we got, we were all in on beta. Like when beta came out, we started recording everything and collecting everything that we could on beta. But some of the other shows that we had on, on the reel to reel we couldn't get them again and you couldn't copy them over. We didn't have the technology right. to copy from reel to reel. So when our reel to reel player died, that was it. We couldn't get those movies back. Yeah. And I would be, I wouldn't be surprised if I flew to Pittsburgh right now and started opening some of the closets, some of those reel to reel tapes would still be there. <laughs> but the, the trick was if you kept them in the lower shelf of the closet and then somebody would come by and run the vacuum, they would demagnetize the tape. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> so there was so there were there were multiple nights of numerous tears out of, of a young Greg Nicotero's <laughs> face when I would put a movie on to play uh -huh. and all you got was snow. I'm I'm weeping for that child right now. I could <laughs> that that happened that happened a lot. I think like there was like the pilot episode of Land of the Giants. Um, that was demagnetized uh, because someone ran the vacuum cleaner next to it. So, <clears throat> so yeah, so those, you know, those movies and, you know, and honestly, that's when, that's when sort of bootlegging became a thing because then these guys in New York started putting movie, putting 
cameras in the backs of movie theaters and filming movies and then telling them. Oh. Uh, and and people could then have all those movies on uh, at their at their you know at home. Except I had those little mystery science figures walking around, sitting down, <laughs> walking through the picture. Or or people coughing. Yeah, yeah. Or people coughing, coughing. And at one point, um, talking through them. Or or like the or the camera would be just tilted slightly, and, <laughs> and you would hear everybody laughing. <laughs> I think. I think I remember seeing a a video of Young Frankenstein that somebody had shot in the back of a movie theater, and you oh you, you know the, the audio was coming from the screen, so anybody that was sitting you'd hear the people talking in front of the camera, um, right? But you know that was you know that was kind of part of as the world progressed uh, in terms of making that kind of entertainment available and i remember when when the towering inferno came out on beta it was two parts and it was about 180 dollars to buy the movie like they weren't cheap it wasn't like mm -hmm. it wasn't like 1999 or it was 180 bucks and the tapes were only an hour long because then you had like slow play versus long play versus super long play and the quality was shittier the longer the tape was right um and I remember buying the Towering Inferno on uh, on home video, and it was like 180 bucks. People forget that all the the early VHSs that uh, when when, that, when those video stores bought those VHSs from those companies, they had to pay 100 bucks a tape. That yeah. was one of the, and that was why that and it cost like what 50 cents to make it, and it was just a, a cash cow for these guys. Yeah, and then they would start renting them. So then you would go in. I mean, vi the video store boom, which is gone. But, you know, I remember knowing when movies would come out. And you would go to the video store and you'd stand in the new release section. Um, and and it was, you know, so many movies that that were important to us as, as film goers. And then you would start realizing that these filmmakers made other films, you know, because a lot of the people that owned the video stores were movie buffs. So it, that was when all of a sudden they started right. making suggestions. Oh, you like the movie of this guy? Well, you should watch this and you should watch this. So video stores really, for me, because I felt like I was a little ahead of that curve in terms of being, you know, collecting movies because my parents were movie buffs. But it really became a, a, a form of a film education class, you know? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, how many times, Joe, did you and I uh, meet at Dave's Laser when Laserdiscs came oh, out? Oh, yeah. yeah um, that, was, that was the place to go in L.A. for. Uh, it was the place stuff. to go. And, and, you know, between Mick Garris and, and, like, everybody would have all the signings and you'd go and you'd buy Laserdisc and you'd go through and you'd get people to sign it. But... On Saturday afternoons, Dave's Laser was like the place to go. Not only because you could get rare, yeah. you could get rare imports, um, but that that other yeah. filmmakers wanted to celebrate, you know, movies that they that that people might not know. I know. Now there's there's really no place to do that yeah. anymore. Uh, you know, there's no. there's 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 television and there's trailers from hell, which is about the only place you can go now to get people to curate you and say, well, you should see this movie. Or how about this guy? And what about this genre? Yeah. 
but you know it's 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 tough because um, younger people don't aren't, aren't exposed the way you were yeah uh, to all the things that were going on and to older pictures and so as a result um, they're they're they don't know who a lot of these people are yeah well and and it's and it's unfortunate because a lot of those films that shaped who we became you know like I remember seeing like one of my favorite movies is uh, is Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know, the 1978 oh, yeah. uh, version. And that movie was, it, it, it just, from the moment I started watching that movie, I had this weird sense of dread. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could not understand why I felt that way. And when you look at the movie as a, as an exercise in creating that dread, like the camera, you know, like the, the lighting was always low. So it was creating those weird shadows and the wide angle lenses and just sort of getting really close to people's faces, but shooting them wide so that it looked like you were in this very strange kind of fever dream. I was always, I was always fascinated with movies that sort of created that sense of unease and you didn't even really know why you were feeling it, but you were anxious about it. You know, I mean, the opening credit scene where it starts with the, with the alien little eggs on the other planet and then they float and they get caught up in the atmosphere and it rains and you see them growing on the leaves. Like you're telling the audience already, okay, this is something bad. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Yeah, that that is such a great film, and I, I'm to this day haunted by that fucking dog. Which, which uh, I the one with the human face. I talked to uh, I talked to Tom Berman because you know Tom Berman designed that that face, and I think he still has that actual prosthetic mask that the dog wore. Does so he put it on his dog every now and then? Let it run around the house. Maybe <laughs> puts it on his dog and not like walks around the house going. Argh. I don't know. Yeah. It's <laughs> uh, so fantastic. I, I just uh, before we get to the next one, I just want to say the I, I realized as you were talking, the first one hundred and fifty dollars I ever earned as a writer, I spent at Dave's <laughs> by buying one buying the Doctor Strange Love laser disc, the entirety. You'd think they'd still be in business with that kind of money. Yeah, yeah, but uh, that discs were expensive, and and I still had. Listen, I kept all of mine. I still have all my discs. There's a Did you? Of, yeah, but beware of beware of laser. <laughs> I know, I know. Unfortunately, but there's a lot of those special features that you you can't get yeah. on updated. The, the Citizen Kane disc uh, has these um, immense number of interviews, including one from me, uh, that have never That's been right. uh, ported yeah. over to any other uh, release yeah. of the picture, and they're fascinating. I mean, really, they're yeah. major filmmakers, and they're talking about this great movie, and it was like. I, I thought my, I I don't know if it's a rights issue or, or what the deal is, but it just it never got used on any of the um, video releases. Yeah, it's strange because I think people feel like, oh, well, if we're going to do another release, we have to update the special features, and a lot of times those some of the stuff that's on the original special features, you know, like the the Star Wars. I still have the Star Wars disc and the Jaws disc, and you know, there's so much great stuff that's interviews with people at that time. If they come back and interview them again, they're not going to tell a different story or they might not remember. Or, they're, or, they, or they, they don't live anymore. 
you know i mean yeah. so many people who passed away the the uh, the uh, bad day at black rock um uh disc has a, a commentary by john sturgis which is fascinating but it's never been used for any other release and wow. I, it's just so you have to hang on to your laser disc I believe that commentary track is on YouTube, thankfully. The uh, one that kills me is the, the Baron Munchausen disc was just packed to the gills with amazing stuff. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, yeah. Such a great movie, too. But, um, but anyway, Greg, you want to give us, give us a few more? Of your yeah, movies? yeah. Okay. I got to look at my list again because I... I uh, but you've covered a bunch of them already. I kind of... Yeah, because they all, yeah. they all kind of sort of feel like they they seamlessly kind of run together you know it's it, uh, it's just kind of funny but right you know I'm... let me let me ask you this before you get into it um i'm assuming you've got blu-rays of all those movies you taped by hand 40 years ago oh i do yes and and deep down in your heart which do you value more your blu-ray or your shitty reel-to-reel well, <laughs> video I, tapes? I, well the reel-to-reel tape here's the trick you'd have to and again, this is something that 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 people don't appreciate or understand. But when we were younger and we were interested in these kinds of films, you had to work at it. Like you, you'd get the TV guide, yeah. and the TV guide would show up on Thursdays, yeah. and you'd go through and you'd have to circle the movies that you wanted to watch, and you had to be sitting by the th- by the TV when that movie was on. You couldn't access it anytime you wanted. And a lot of times I really equate that to why so many of us have that same sort of shared experience of, yeah, because you had to work at it, yeah. you know? And that, and, and that made the experience special because it's not like you can, we take for granted the fact you can go over to your closet and pull out a Blu-ray of a movie you love, but yeah. We had to we had to go to the trouble sometimes to just get in the car and go to the theater and see the movie, which made the whole experience different than it was if somebody just hands you a disc and says, "Here, play this. I think you'd like it." Because the the the, the whole idea of going out among people, seeing it with an audience, particularly this kind of picture um, and comedies, is not the same uh, when when they're experienced the way that we experience films today. And and even that that's still that's still going away because people it, it's a convenient thing. I mean, they, I don't think a lot. I mean, I don't think a lot of people really appreciate the idea of the communal experience of seeing a movie when when you know, like when Ben Gardner's head popped out of the boat in Jaws, which is that always seminal talked about moment where people reacted. I remember seeing all the people's heads in the movie theater in front of me all recoil at the exact same second, like a sonic wave. And it, that can't help but affect you. It can't help but, but you know, add to the experience. And it makes me sad that movie theaters are getting mm-hmm. smaller and smaller unless people really appreciate that because, you know, when Alien came out and it was 70 millimeter Dolby and you sit in the theater and you'd hear the noise from behind you and the sounds and everything rumbled and it, it immersed you in it. And that's what I always, that's what I always loved about it. I love that, that immersive experience or just, you know, yeah. Feeling like you're surrounded by it, you know? Yeah. 
Um, you know, and listen, there was one movie that popped up that popped up today that I didn't forget about, but I think when I initially did my list, I kind of went for like movies that inspired me as a, as an effects artist, um, and was sort of in awe of those, but you know, there was, there was, there's one movie that's a comedy that, that actually like we, we would go to dinner with my family and we would quote this movie um, at dinner. We'd sit around the table and it's what's up doc. Ugh. Peter Bogdanovich movie. And yeah. it, that was another one of those movies that, that we would sit there and quote um, Kenneth Mars's dialogue over and over again. Oh, you need, you know, Oh, can you fix a high five? No, I mean, I can still do it to this day. It's, it was such a, it's such a crazy, zany, weird, random movie. And when you realize that Buck Henry wrote it and that, and Bogdanovich directed it, and it was intended to be this kind of screwball comedy. I realized, Josh, when I had sent you that list yesterday, that I didn't really put a lot of comedies in there. I thought, oh, it's all genre stuff. And it's genre stuff because it had effects in it. And that part of it, um makes a lot of sense but i started thinking this morning about what's up doc and just how much that movie just takes you on this ridiculous ludicrous sort of screwball comedy <laughs> but it's one of my favorite movies so i can't i couldn't you know when i thought about it today i went you know i didn't put that on my list but god i love that movie so much it's just so fun and everybody that you talk about that movie too that had seen it that's like that immediately people respond to it yeah i i went back to it uh recently i guess there was a new blu-ray or something maybe in the last year and my wife nancy had not seen it and there's always that thing with i think with comedy more than almost anything because so much of it doesn't age well and there was just this like like little tingling fear in the back of my head like oh god what if what if what's up doc doesn't work anymore and you're 10 minutes into it and it just it's working like a maniac it's such a great film it's so funny it's funny even when i first visited los angeles i came out to la in 1976 it was the the first time i ever visited la summer of 76 i think logan's run had had come out it was before star wars because i remember logan's run was like a big deal then and we were driving down the 405 freeway and Kenneth Mars was in the car next to us. Oh, it was, it was my parents and my uncle and my cousins. And we looked over and Kenneth Mars was there. And, you know, that was after, you know, young Frankenstein and what's up doc. And we started waving. Like we were like, Oh my God. Oh my God. And he kind of waved. And at one point I think he just sort of slowed down. <laughs> and pass him. And then I did, when I moved to LA and I started my company, um, one of the first movies we did was one of the Police Academy movies, and we had to make a mask of Kenneth Mars. And Kenneth Mars came to KMD. Oh, wow. And uh, we did a face cast with him, and I told him that story. I said, you know, when I was a kid, we came to, we came to um, California, and you were in the car next to us, and you were waving, and we were sort of like driving along. And I told him how much I loved the What's Up Doc. And I'll never get He said, that movie was so much fucking fun to make. I cannot tell you. And it, it, it sort of warmed my heart. Oh, that's so good uh, to hear. I was really excited to have 
that have said, oh man, you know, I, I'm friends with uh, Josh Brolin and I keep like wanting to tell Josh to get uh, Barbara Streisand to sign a picture for me from What's Up Doc because <laughs> it's such a great movie. <laughs> yes, and that she that is our generation's Barbara Streisand, isn't it? I mean, she's... Oh yeah, for, without a doubt. She she's so cute in that movie. I I have such a thing for what's up, Doc yes. Barbara Streisand. Yes, yes. Anyway, <laughs> um, I'm, looking, I'm looking for my list to make sure I didn't leave anything out. Stuff that I was talking. Oh, I did hit a lot of it. Wow, that's kind of oh funny. wow. Yeah, no, but you, I, I, I know do. You've got more. I do. Well, you know, like listen, staying in the with the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Staying in the comedy, sort of the comedy vein, you know, Little Shop of Horrors, um, the the uh, the Rick Moranis version um, was was a movie that I, I was so sort of enthralled with. You know, one of the criteria I always talk about, like if a movie transports me, uh, I, I I consider that a successful movie. You know, I mean, if it transports me to another world, sure. another place, like I, I feel, you know, I feel like I've gotten what I want out of that movie. And there were a certain number of movies that I felt very, very successfully transported me or suspended my disbelief enough that I kind of went, oh, yeah, of course. Like, I remember um, Dragon Slayer did the same kind of thing for me. I remember mm-hmm. feeling feeling transported by that movie. Like I kind of at one point thought they must have gone to Europe and went into a cave and found a real dragon and filmed with it because I believed it. <laughs> and and that was after I was sort of in the business and kind of starting to learn how things were done, um, how things, you know, how effects were created. Um, so when I watched Little Shop of Horrors and I saw Rick Moranis singing with the giant plant, I, I, I yep. sat in the theater next to my friends and I'm like, I don't know how they did that. I don't know how they, they so seamlessly, like now if they made that movie, it would all be digital, it would all be CGI. But when you realize much like aliens, you know, they, they used every single trick in the book. You know, there was a miniature and then there was, they would record things at a slower speed and speed up the film so that the lip sync could match the puppet so that Rick Moranis had to act slower so that the puppet could keep up with him. Oh God. And, and he was singing to a slowed down track of himself so that he singing could- To a slowed down track. But the funny thing about it was I didn't care because I didn't think about any of those things when I was watching the movie. All I was thinking about was, well, somehow they found a singing plant and they shot this movie before it ate all of them. 
Wait a minute. You were in the business when that movie came out, weren't you? I was, but it didn't matter. I, it was so <laughs> successful. It was so successful to me wow. that I really believed it. I believed. That's so great. And and I and I really feel like movies that movies that take me to that place. Yeah. You know, and you know, The Howling is another movie again that I believe. You know, I watch those things and I see those moments and I'm shocked and I'm and I'm when I can't figure out how it was done um, and especially a guy who studied it and still studies it uh, mm-hmm. it's 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 really fun for me to be fooled because I want to be yeah. fooled because my job is to fool other people my job is to convince other people that what I'm putting in front of them is real. So to, to appreciate the craft of these filmmakers that fooled me, um, I got to give it to them, you know? And yeah, that's, that's such an important thing. And I find so many people, um, you know, there's a version of that in my line of work with, with writers where, um, you know, people pride themselves on seeing plot twists coming and, all the rest of that. And I, I find to me, there's just nothing more joyful than uh, uh, being completely, yeah, as you say, fooled by a movie and not seeing it coming. And some of it is like, I don't want to be, yeah, exactly. I don't want to be fooled. I want to, I do want to be fooled. I don't want to, you know, be sitting there thinking about how they did it while I'm watching it. So it's great that that. I, I thought on Little Shop, they made a mistake uh, jettisoning the original ending. Oh, right. The... Uh, which, which you can now see on YouTube. Uh, in, yes. In, Instead of uh, this fabulous uh, spectacle at the end of the picture um, where the plants get loose and knock down the city and all that stuff, they decided to stay inside a little room. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it was because, well, it's more true to the original movie, which was shot in two and a half days, and so we don't want ours to be too big. But I just thought, especially having seen how how great it is, uh, I just don't, don't understand the thinking behind it. Yeah, it's I, I always I always was was confused by that too, especially and I didn't even know about it until I read the Cinefix article, and there was a photo of Ellen Green, um, or no, I'm sorry, Rick Moranis wrapped up in the tentacle, being lowered to the Audrey II's mouth, and I and I remember looking at that, going, wait, wait, what is that? And when I read the article, the article, and then they showed pictures of all the miniatures of them taking over you know, the Brooklyn Bridge and all the buildings and um, taking over the world. And again, the spirit of Little Shop of Horrors in that movie is that, you know, the plants are taking over the world. So I think it was just some bad decision of like, well, we can't have an ending where everybody dies. Um, We got to have a little, you know, we got to save the girl and we got to have a happy ending. But, you know, I ran out and bought that, uh, laser disc or DVD that had the footage on there immediately when that came out because a lot of it was like the work print black and white footage mm-hmm. um, and I know it's on there now but I don't know if they ever use like cut the whole alternate I, I don't know if they ever finished it I think it may still be a work in progress but it's still pretty impressive yeah there's there's a kind of rough thing on the blu-ray where you can look at the alternate ending but I don't think it's um fully produced yeah but it's but it's funny because you think about movies like that now a then and now scenario and 
part of the reason, and I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into aliens for for just a minute because yeah. I watched it the other day with my 14 year old daughter, and what I admire about that movie is Jim Cameron used every every trick in the book. He used rear projection. Yep. He used quarter scale miniatures. He used guys in suits. He used front projection. He used every single trick in the book to tell that story. And and I so admired that. And it's interesting because I read an article in DGA Magazine about a year ago where he said, oh, if I made that movie today, everything would be digital. And it really, that comment really made me sad because I feel like part of the triumph is figuring out how the fuck to do it. Like using those, and Joe, I'd be curious to hear what you think about that in terms of, in terms of that sort of technology, because, you know, sometimes people are a slave to what technology is available to them at the time. But in my, in a lot of, I feel what, what works with a movie like Aliens or Little Shop of Horrors uh, or The Howling. And a lot of these was what technology was available to us at the time. And the fact that Jim said, oh, I would go back and I would redo some of that stuff and the movie would be a very different movie. I feel like some of what makes Aliens a great movie is that he embraced the technology that was available to him at the time, you know. I, I agree with that, and I, and I think that uh, some of the movies that we made were improved by the fact that we couldn't just snap our fingers and have something appear. You know, we had to figure out interesting ways to do it and, and practical ways to do it. And we've, we've failed a lot of times. I mean, there's a lot of footage in these movies that you didn't get to see because it didn't work. You know, we had to think of something else. And, and sometimes the, 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 the journey to get to that other place actually makes it better. Yeah. And I, I always use the, the example of, you know, how excited everybody always was at the beginning of the James Bond movies when there would be some terrific stunt. Somebody would ski off a mountain mm -hmm. or they would sort of flying car or whatever the fuck they would, it would do. And once CGI came along, everybody went, oh, well, it's fake. Yeah. And now yeah. They, they didn't really do it. That guy didn't really risk his life. Like, you know, it's, it's all done with mirrors. And it, it just takes away. I think a lot of the immediacy of what you think you're experiencing. Well, and and I listen. I I couldn't agree more. And even when people want to go back and and futz with stuff that was done back then, to me, when you when you get a job on a film, the first few meetings to me are always the most exciting because everything's on the table. You know, I mean, we know budgets and we know like there there are always limitations, but it's almost like when you have VFX, there are no limitations. And because there aren't limitations, everything and anything can happen. So you have a, a frame of a downtown street with some big fight going on. Everything that can move and everything in that can explode and everything that could, uh, that could shatter does in the course of a frame. So you become overloaded with, overloaded with it. Um, and it's less impactful. Well, if you've, if you've seen if you've seen 1917, you know uh, all that 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 very spectacular scene with the bombs going off and running around, and yeah. it's, it's almost all fake. I mean, there's there's almost nothing real in that material. And and people who who went to the uh, the Bake Off at the Academy and looked at the special effects, you know, they ran their reel and they showed what they had done. 
and people were astonished. It was almost like in, in gravity that it's it's practically a cartoon, except for the faces of the actors, because it's all done uh, in the computer. And not that the, not to take away from these movies because they're very yeah. well done, but uh, it's there's so much more going on than meets the eye to the average viewer that they don't realize how special effects have actually conquered Hollywood to the point where you can't just go out and shoot anything anymore without having to do something to it in post. Yeah. Well, and, and what's interesting about that is when, when you're forced with a situation on set where you have to figure out a way to make it work. I mean, I think so much, um, so much on the editors and on the directors because you're taking the frames of footage that do work and having to craft something out of it. You know, I mean, it's like watching the dailies of um, the chestburster scene from Alien, where the dailies, the chestburster looks absolutely ludicrous. It just sticks out and it, you hear the pistons moving and then the blood is spraying, but it doesn't look real. And you realize after looking at all that footage that that Ridley and and I think Terry Rawlings edited Rollins edited that movie, the idea that they could take minute pieces of film together, and and craft one of the most uh, terrifying sequences in in our generation, but they wouldn't have had they don't have to do that now they wouldn't have to do that now they'd be like oh well we'll just we'll just string it all along in one particular fashion or another. So a lot of a lot of the artistry that is required by filmmakers and technicians to be able to sit down and figure out how they're going to do it. How are we going to do this as opposed is to me part of the the most fun of any process of making a film is determining that. And so often it's like, oh well we'll just do it digitally that kind of takes for me it takes a lot of the fun out of it because then we're not being challenged with how are you going to do it yeah i mean one of the things that just blew me away about alien at the time was was you know the slow realization as i became sort of obsessed with it and you'd read articles and look at all those photos and video of behind the scenes stuff is that you know there were some technical advancements that, that that were new to the medium but very few it was really just really clever direction how to how to deal with uh, shooting this stuff in a way that was more dynamic than than you'd seen before. Um, I mean, it's it's just incredible to me to this day. That, and Joe and I have this argument sometimes. He has some issues with it, but but the fact that it's, it's just a guy in a rubber suit, and it's still this terrifying thing. I felt like I'd never seen before. Well, you know, I mean, that's that's kind of the way that it it breaks down, and you know, like werewolf transformations were changed forever because of the howling and. And, you know, yeah. understanding the pieces of film that you use and how you want to change somebody into a creature. And, you know, that set the standard for so long, mm -hmm. for years until, you know, until computer and digital effects came on. But now you know that you're not watching something change in front of you. You're watching um, a computer program or enter a bunch of right. uh, data. And it's just, not, it's it's not the same and it will never be the same. And you know, I think with the advent of video games, people are okay with it. People play video games. So when they watch a movie and the movie looks like their video game, they're okay with it because uh, that's what they're comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. 
Um, but it, it is, yeah, the Howling's a good example too of, of I had, I hadn't seen Joe, Joe will tell me there were five more before it, but you know, up, up until then, it seems to me that werewolf transformations were, you know, your lead actor staring at the camera while they did time-lapse photography and added the makeup to his face. And just the simple idea of... That was pretty much the standard, yeah. Right, but just the simple idea of moving the camera and cutting and doing different angles of that. Well, but going into it, the way we sold them and doing the picture was we, we, we said we want to do the transformation in one shot. Now, it didn't occur to me until I actually started working on it that not only was that really difficult to do, but it was also anti-dramatic. Because when Manimal came out uh, on TV, you know, they had, this guy was turning into animals in one shot and it was all done, you know, and, and the, the Michael Jackson video uh, has the same thing. And it's like, okay, right. been there, done that. I've seen it now, you know, right. and, and, and if you take away the, the idea of editing and the idea of characters reacting to what's going on as audience surrogates, uh, then you can get away with a lot more than if you just sort of plunk it down and say, okay, here's the, here's the effect. Now it's over. Cut to the next scene. Uh, but it's, a, it's, you know, we're on the other side of it now. It seems like such an obvious solution. Just shoot it the way you would shoot any other scene, basically. Yeah. And it took, it took decades for someone to figure that out. You know, you know you're Jack Pierce trying to make uh, Lon Chaney into, into the Wolfman. I mean, they, they, even, even in that series, they progressed from the first picture where they had only one transformation, and it was back, not forward. Mm -hmm. uh, and then by the time they made the, 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 the sequel, they had gotten a little bit better at doing the transformations. Right. And so the, the, the transformations are a little better. And then interestingly, by the time they got to the Abbott Costello movie, the, the Jack Pierce approach had been completely abandoned, as, as had Jack Pierce. And now the Westmores were in there, and it was all, it was all just facial masks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, and the nose, the, the shape of the nose was different, and its sculpture was completely different. Yeah, I mean it's fine, but it's not as good as the original. So. <laughs> no, I agree. But it's interesting that you would say that in terms of how not not dramatic um, a werewolf transformation would be in one shot, because there's something interesting conceptually about like, oh, I'd love to see what that looks like, but. It doesn't, but you know, I mean, what always was so fantastic about your your transformation was, you know, the D Wallace was in the room, and you could cut to her reacting, yeah. um, and that made it more terrifying for the audience, right? Because you had another character to react to. Um, I have to tell you a funny story, Joe. So, you know, I started um, I started a acquiring a few props here and there from from. Uh, from someone who was friends with Rob Bottin. And I recently acquired the full standing rod puppet from the Howling. Wow. The one that the Shank brothers built in their driveway. Right. And the one that we yeah. couldn't use very much of in the movie because you'd have to have it up against a wall and it couldn't, it couldn't move. I mean, it was great looking. Yeah. But when it came time to actually shoot it, it was like, well, it's not the most practical prop. <laughs> yes. Well, there, it, it ended up being in somebody's garage and they would put it out for Halloween uh, every year for Halloween <laughs> in their yard with a cape on it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but it's it like the wolf and little red rider all in the same. <laughs> it, it's what it looked like. I'll send you a picture, but we're going to restore it. We're going to, you know, we're going to fix the head looks fantastic. It's just missing, you know, the foam rotted in the corners. 
but we're going to restore the whole thing to, to what it looks like. Wow. I'll have you, I'll have you guys over when it's ready. That'll be great. The, 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 the foam is always tough. It's the first thing to go. All my, all my gremlins have, they're, they're, they're foaming, <laughs> they're foaming at the mouth, literally. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a friend of mine on the East coast named Tom Spina, who's kind of developed a technique to preserve all that foam. Oh, great. Anyway, but I was excited because I that you know I remember seeing that picture in Santa Fantastique and just seeing that the full werewolf because you know when we were younger you know when you saw monsters uh, a lot of times you know the 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 intent was to keep them in shadow and to keep them mysterious and you know Alien was a perfect example you had no idea what it really looked like until you saw that shot of it being jettisoned from the back of the ship but you know with the howling. Especially when, you know, when, when the werewolf grabs the file from Belinda's hand and you have that, that unforgettable shot from behind her of the thing rearing up. Oh, man, that just, that's one of my favorite shots uh, in, in horror history because it's, it stopped me in my, it stopped me in my uh, tracks for that exact second of like, oh, my God. It's like seeing the shark, you know, eating Teddy Grossman for the first time. And you're like. Oh my god, that thing's huge! Like, how are they ever gonna beat the, that? The oh. fun, the fun thing about that was when the picture opened in New York uh, at the at the Lowe's Theater. Uh, there were two theaters; one of one was above the other, and the the showtimes were staggered by about five minutes. And so you could watch a reaction to that scene, and then you could run upstairs to the next theater and go in the projection booth and watch it again. And it would be exactly the same. And it was, it was just like you just, you described, it was like a field of wheat. When, when, when people have these reactions, it just, it's just a billow that from the front of the audience to the back of the audience. And for some reason, the ones in the front always react quicker than the ones in the back. <laughs> Cause they're closer to it. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're a little closer. I don't know why there's suddenly a short story popped out of my mind. Someone used to write this of the, director in that situation but when you run to the other theater there's no reaction at oh, all. the worst is nobody there <laughs> <laughs> oh that yeah that's a nightmare yeah <laughs> wow yeah that it's funny too that shot always it comes late enough in the film just the hand coming into the frame and you've seen so much amazing stuff you've not seen before that's incredible and effective and then I mean, in some ways, just that simple thing with a hand coming in might be the scariest thing in the entire movie. I'm ruining it for all of our listeners to the oh, Joe Dante. I've seen it in such a chestnut. I've never seen it. Happen. Actually, Joe, when we did Nightmare <laughs> Cinema, I had Belinda sign that still for me. <laughs> so I have that photo. Uh, but again, I mean, I think just the way that and that goes back to sort of the the fascination with part of our psyche that wants to see the whole monster. Because when you see the whole monster, you can in your head process what it is you're looking at and like, oh, well, it's not so bad or it's way worse than I thought it was. But in the howling, because of the way you see it and then it swats at her and knocks her over. I mean, it's got power and it's that, that great backlight that you had on it. It just, yeah. um, it just leaves you with just a, a, an amazing sense of I don't know what the hell this thing is capable of doing. So then in the next bit, when the transformation happens, you know, it just, um, it just changed everything uh, for me, for sure, in terms of what I wanted to do. So, 
Oh, oh wow, really? Yeah. That makes, that that. makes me proud to think that it oh, led to all this great work. It's amazing. And, and now here we are. And now, and now your crowning achievement, <laughs> appearing on movies. <laughs> yeah. Appearing on your podcast. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> well, listen, guys, I mean, it's, it's, there's so much, so much amazing stuff. And then, you know, we, we, you know, then you kind of veer into the, the campy world of the stuff that I loved when I was a kid, you know, like War of the Gargantuas and the Green Slime and, you know, like all the Godzilla movies, which in no means i you should anybody should ever love because they're just so obscenely ridiculous but you can't help it i mean and now they're all together on one gigantic criterion dvd they are indeed i haven't picked that up yet but i uh but you know i think i i that was part of where that sort of started my fascination with miniatures was knowing that there was these guys that would build sound stages filled with models of a city street, and then you put a guy in a rubber suit, and then he just runs through and steps on all of them. Like, to me, that's probably, like, if I ever had a last wish, if it's like, okay, you get one last wish, I would probably say, I want to be in a Godzilla suit, and I want to run through a sound stage of miniature buildings with pyrotechnics in them. I can't think of anything more satisfying than, you know, we would, when we were, when my younger brother, Brian and I would, and they would plow the driveways uh, in Pittsburgh near, in our house, they would leave all the snow piled up at the end. And we would pretend that that was a city and we would stand on top of it and we would stomp on the snow as if we were crushing miniature buildings. Yes. <laughs> I haven't thought of that in 40 years. I'll paint up anger here. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, Greg, thank you so much for uh, coming out and doing this, Joe. I'm gonna, I, I don't know if you know this, um, Greg is, uh, is uh, taking off now to race across town and um, uh, be on Mick Garris's podcast. Oh, for God's sake, don't say anything you said on our podcast. I will. <laughs> I was thinking we should try to keep him long, and I was going to email Mick and blackmail him into you know, giving him his guest. <laughs> Now, does Mick Mick actually does his podcast from where? No, he's not. He's doing it from his. He, house. He does it from his yeah, you know. But I will say, you guys, you guys have been pursuing me longer than Mick has, ah. because gosh, you and I talked a couple, and I know, yes, Joe, I know we've talked about you know the trailers from hell for for right. a long. But I'm never around. I mean, you know, I've you are now. I am now exactly. <laughs> Well, I just I just want to register then that our love for you is sincere. And more love, Mick, Mick is just a Johnny come lately. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm listen. I'm honored and I'm grateful um, that you guys wanted me on. And listen, I mean it's 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 been a it's been a blast. And Joe, I'm always excited to to get a chance to talk to you. And Josh, thank you. Listen, it, it took it took a pandemic for you to be available. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, I I'll, I'll try harder next time. <laughs> Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. 
Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Stay safe out there, folks. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.